Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that for him, the real meaning of March Madness comes from the side effects of green beer. He is the captain. Well, smack my ass and call me St. Patrick. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening, and thanks for telling a friend. Today we are drinking Tank 7 Farmhouse Ale by Boulevard Brewing Company. Garage grade four and a quarter bottle caps out of five. This is a traditional Belgian style farmhouse ale. It's a beautiful golden straw colored beer with grapefruit hoppy notes. This flavor is complex with a peppery dry finish and we are very thankful to be sharing a drink with all of you here in the garage, especially William K., who is one of our Twitter friends. And with his beer fund contribution, he has put a hashtag greatest podcast ever. And big we like your jib to Andrea in Marysville, Ohio. And next up, we have Linda in Oakland, Kentucky. And a big cheers mates to Stephanie in the Down Under in Glenmore Park, Australia. And here's a long distance high five to Jennifer in Turlock, California. And last but not least, a salute to Ellen in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Salute to you. Thanks, everybody, for filling up the fridge for this week's show. If you want to help out with next week's show, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. And if you'd like to get something in return, check out the store page. we got the Douche Canoe shirts. We have the new Feeling Fami shirts. And then we have some logo T-shirts and all that stuff. So check that out at truecrimegarage.com. And a little behind-the-scenes information here, Captain. Mm-hmm. We had to send the Captain home yesterday because... He was feeling fommy. I was. I'm still feeling fommy. All right, that's enough of the business. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
January 2001. A young man not even 30 years of age named Scott Ponder decided to start up his own business. Scott was a very passionate motorcycle enthusiast. So he took his love and knowledge of motorcycles and decided to open up a motorcycle and power sports dealership called Superbike Motorsports in Chesney, South Carolina. Scott's best friend, Brian Lucas, was hired as the first employee of Superbike. Brian shared the same enthusiasm for all things two-wheeled, and Brian had the skills to service and repair motorbikes. So Brian became the shop's service manager. The store became a quick success. Scott used the internet to increase his customer base and boost sales, and Superbike saw more than $1 million in sales in the store's first year. Scott's mom, Beverly Guy, became a helpful hand at her son's business. Oftentimes, she would run errands for her son's store, and Scott enjoyed having her around the shop, so he hired her as the company's bookkeeper. In 2002, the business saw continued success. In 2003, as Superbike's business increased, so would the employee roster. Scott and Brian hired a skilled young man named Chris Schubert to be a mechanic. Superbike Motorsports really had become the place to go for all things motorsports. So people would go into the store to make purchases, seek expert advice, or sometimes just hang out and talk shop. On Thursday, November 6, 2003, Noel Lee, a regular at Superbike and close friend of Scott Ponder's, called the store at 2.30 p.m. to tell Ponder's mother, Beverly, that he was coming there to drop off some tickets to a motorcycle race that would be held the next night at the Bylow Center. Noel planned to go with Ponder and Lucas. Beverly told Noel that they would be at the shop and to go ahead and drop in. Noel took a shower and then left his house, and he arrived at Superbike around 3 p.m. Noel pulled into the parking lot, and he saw his friend Brian Lucas lying face up in the front entrance of the shop. Noel parked his BMW next to Beverly's car. When he got out of his vehicle, he noticed Scott Ponder's body. Scott's body was in a puddle of blood, his head on the pavement, his body partially on the concrete sidewalk, and partially under his mother's car. Brian Lucas's body was propping the shattered glass door open. Noel stepped over his friend's body and ran inside the shop and over to the telephone on the parts counter. He called 911. At the same time, Noel is yelling to Brian and Scott, telling them that he was getting them some help. While Noel was on the phone with the 911 operator, he saw Scott's mother, Beverly. She was laying on the floor, just outside the bathroom of the large showroom, which was located in the middle of the Superbike store. She was not moving, and there was blood around her. Noel told the operator that there should be a fourth person, Chris Sherbert, somewhere in the store. But he was advised not to go wandering around the store. The operator told Noel for his own safety he needed to go outside. The police and paramedics are on their way to Superbike, and you need to get out of the store. The minutes he waited outside were long ones. As help arrived, Lee sat across the street in the grass trying to convince himself that everything he had just experienced was not real 
and that his friends were still alive. When paramedics and police arrived, they found Scott, Brian, and Beverly. All were dead upon arrival. They found Chris Sherbert in the very back of the store. He had been shot once in the head and was slumped over a motorcycle that he had been working on. In that short time, between the time Noel had called the store and arrived at the store, all hell had broken loose. Because sometime between 2.30 p.m. and 3 p.m. on that Thursday in November, someone had walked into the Superbike Motorsports store and shot the owner, his mother, and both employees in the head. This is True Crime Garage. The crime became known as the Superbike Murders, and it seemed as senseless as it was cold-blooded. Nothing was taken from the store. This was not a robbery. In fact, an envelope of cash was lying. It was left lying in plain sight. Mm -hmm. Police searched for leads, and they pursued a variety of theories. Sheriff Bill Coffey and his investigators, they interviewed dozens of people, and they followed dozens of tips within the weeks that followed. But before we get into some of those leads, Captain, I want to talk about a few strange things here that that were right out of the gate with this case. Mm -hmm. So just days after the Superbike murders, law enforcement, they're on record stating that there were some similarities to another crime that had occurred that same year. This is the May 2003 triple homicide that took place at Blue Ridge Savings Bank. Both locations were somewhat isolated, and the uh, the investigators thought that the attacks did not appear to be random. Now, both of these attacks involved some execution-style shootings, which resulted in multiple homicides. So they're stating that we're seeing some similarities here as to what we saw with the Superbike murders. Now, at this bank uh, in May of 2003 at the Blue Ridge Bank, the bank teller, Sylvia Hortzclaw, she was killed, along with two customers, James and Margaret Burns, were both killed in that incident. The thing that seems strange to me, Captain, is that they come out right at the gate saying that we think that there's some similarities here. The big problem for me is immediately there's one very different issue, is that the bank, that absolutely was a robbery. Right, it was a takeover. Yeah, and the the superbike situation we we see money left in plain sight. And this was a very successful business, this Superbike Motorsports. And think about it. They're selling high-ticket items. You know, mm-hmm. motorcycles are not cheap. You know, you don't just walk in there and pay 50 bucks and walk out of there with a motorcycle. That'd be awesome if you did. <laughs> I, would have, I would have at least three. <laughs> but another strange thing, and this, Captain, I find to be very strange, is that Scott Ponder, he's the uh, young man that owned the Superbike store. Mm -hmm. He's the son of William Dean Ponder. And now, William Dean Ponder is a man that went missing 13 years 
before Scott was killed at his store. Hmm. Now, there's no evidence to suggest that these cases are any way connected at all, according to uh, investigators. But just to give you a quick rundown of that scenario of the, of his father's situation, that was way back in August of 1993, where William Dean Ponder spent the evening with friends at a place called Jay's Tavern. This was pretty close to his home. His friends stated that they dropped him off at the Martin Feed Mill at the intersection of Paris Bridge Road and Martin Camp Road. Now, the man was never seen or heard from again. William's father was the one that reported him missing, uh, reported him missing on September 2nd. Now, William, I guess, had a criminal record which dated back to 1976 and included charges for drug and alcohol offenses, property crimes, and weapons violations. Well, it's possible that the, the law enforcement knew more about money, possibly. And so maybe when they say it's similar to the bank takeover, is there some kind of money that was taken that they didn't know about? Or was the attacker for, forced to flee the building before he could he or she or they could make off with whatever they intended to to get from the store right um regarding his father william was released from prison just two months before his disappearance and i guess foul play is a strong suspicion in that case because in 2006 a former acquaintance of williams told police that william had in fact been murdered um he has been declared legally dead but his remains to this date have never been found. I wanted to make sure that we brought that up because that is a strange thing that, that you find when you first start looking at these superbike murders, you're like, wait a second. Oh my God, this guy's father has disappeared. Mm-hmm. You almost feel like there's something, somebody uh, working and plotting against the family. But as we said, investigators state that they don't see any connection between the two crimes. Now back to the leads that we discussed. Now, Scott Ponder was a bright young businessman. We said that his young business was was very successful, over a million dollars in sales its first year. So, of course, Superbike Motorsports was located on a road and situated in town where a lot of vehicles are going to drive past this business during the course of, of a daily, you know, everyone's daily routines. So the first leads by law enforcement were that there was three cars that were seen at Superbikes that day. And the sheriff's department, they started working with a graphics company to draw up computerized composites of the vehicles that were seen at the shop on that fateful day. Now, the vehicles that were seen at the shop earlier in the day are described as follows. The first was was believed to possibly be an early 90s small red Chevy Cavalier or possibly a Honda Civic mm-hmm. with like a boxy rear. And then the other vehicle seen was a late model Chevrolet Z 71 pickup truck described as a medium blue with factory wheels and Chrome exhaust and Chrome bed rails. And here's a very good detailed item regarding the truck. The truck had a 45 day South Carolina tag on the back. Now, when the sheriff released this information to the public, he was smart to remind all of us that, you know, someone with a truck matching this description or if you see one, call it in. Do not dismiss a truck of this description simply because it no longer has the 45-day tag on the back. Those things right, expire right. and uh, could be switched out at, really at any time. Mm-hmm. Now, the third vehicle, Captain, was a sporty, small, light blue pickup truck 
make and model unknown. There was another lead, and this lead was a man and a woman were seen near the dealership around the time of the murders, and then shortly again after the murders. Both were known drug users with shady reputations. It took some time, but police were able to track these two down, and it turns out that the lead fizzled out pretty quickly. They were cleared of having any involvement. Plus, you have to wonder, too, if two addicts were mm. went into this place looking for money, committed the crime, why did they leave such a large amount of cash behind and not right. take anything? Now, in the weeks that followed the massacre, Noel Lee, remember, he's the man that that arrived at Superbike's store only to find his friends had been killed. Well, he says that he didn't have time to grieve for his friends. Instead, he found himself under the scrutinizing eye of homicide detectives. Well, he was the last one to call the shop. He found them, and he has no alibi before that time that he showed up to the shop. Yeah, and I guess technically, you know, we're, we're going off of what he says he found, Mm-hmm. And so technically he has no alibi for his time at the shop as well. One thing that's very strange with this guy um, is he had a cell phone on him and that, that called into question a lot of his actions because police were immediately like, well, if you saw your two friends murdered right out in front of the shop, mm-hmm. the danger could still be in the shop. The killer could still be in there. Right. Why would you, why would you, practically leap over the body of your friend, run into the store and use the store's phone to call 911. Now he stated simply this, that when he saw his friends killed in the parking lot, Mm -hmm. he just kind of forgot. Like, you know what I mean? Like nothing really made sense to him. He kind of forgot everything. He was, I think he immediately went into shock and just kind of went on instincts at that point. Well, fight or flight. Right. Mm -hmm. And, And he, he, for some whatever reason, just kind of shot into the store and picked up the phone of the store. But at least he called 911. The tricky thing, too, is that he tells the 911 operator after he sees, you know, he didn't see Beverly Guy killed until he was on the phone with the operator. And at some point... Well, he didn't see her dead. Right. And at some point, he tells the operator this and then says, you know, there should be a fourth person in the building. Mm Mm-hmm. The operator tells him, well, you need to get out of the building, to which he does. You know, he follows the direction of the operator. Again, because he was in shock. Now somebody's telling him, hey, you probably should be outside. And he's like, oh, yeah. And I think that probably makes more sense. I think that the investigators found it pretty curious that he happened to know that there were four people in the store and four people were ultimately found dead there. But like we said, he was a regular. He, He was good friends with Brian, good friends with Scott. And he would have known what was going on at the store. He would have had a good idea. Hey, there's anytime the store is open, there's four people here. Right. When it's like back in the day when I taught guitar lessons, I mean, people would come into the store. They would never see me there. I was in the back room teaching guitar lessons. But regular customers that came in once a week or twice a week, they knew what days I was there on. So if something happened at the store, they'd easily be able to say, there was probably a teacher in the back. Mm -hmm. You know, I know he's there you know, Monday through Thursday or whatever. So uh, the the fact that they find that suspicious, I mean, this guy is dropping off tickets to them. You, you see what I mean? Like, it seems like he has a, a closer relationship than just customer um, store relationship. Well, I'm glad you bring that up because I don't know that everybody will fully identify with how these kind of stores run. You know, so th- this whole 
this whole business is based off of a hobby. And some people, people that are into motorsports, people that are into guitars and music, right? They're usually pretty hardcore about those hobbies. So those are serious, time-consuming hobbies that are expensive, expensive as well. And you know this from working at the guitar store that people sometimes would drop in just to kill time. Oh yeah, we had regular customers that would probably show up, like I said, once or twice a week. And, and then sometimes and they're not there to buy anything. Sometimes it's it's just part of their routine. It's become part of their weekly deal where they're like, I got an extra hour and a half. I'm going to drop by the, the guitar shop, see if they got anything new in, mm-hmm. see what, see what the captain's up to, you know, just kind of shoot the shit, so to speak, is what a lot of them do. Come in and talk shop. Yeah. And then if you didn't see them for a couple of weeks when they came in, the first thing you said is, where have you been? Yeah. Oh, you know, I just got busy. And they'd always say, but every week if they came in, uh, if they came in on a Monday, they'd say, Hey, got anything new in? They came in two days later. You got anything new in? Mm-hmm. And that was just, but half the time you wouldn't even talk about guitars. You just kind of talk about life or whatever. It was, it was like hanging out with your music buddies. Well, Noel Lee, the man that arrived at the superbike to find his friends murdered, they fingerprinted him. They dusted his car. He submitted to a lie detector test. He sat through hours and hours and hours of questioning. And it took quite a bit of time and quite a bit of work on law enforcement's part. Mm-hmm. But at some point, law enforcement, they say that Noel Lee, he was eventually cleared by the police. I don't know the details of them clearing him, but that's their statement to the public. This guy didn't have anything to do with the murders of these four people. Now, this is tragic, of course. These four good people, they are killed. And as I said before, I understand why he was a suspect. In fact, I, I would have some strong <laughs> thoughts about his story as well. I have read and seen many interviews with this guy, though, Captain, and and I hope Noel has fully recovered from this by this point in time. But there is no doubt in my mind, if you see this guy in interviews and you read his words, mm-hmm. this guy suffered from some serious PTSD from from this incident. Yeah, well, these these were his friends. Yeah. You know, so like I said, he was stopping by to drop off tickets to an event. I mean, that like I said, that goes beyond customer store relationship this was their friend and yes you have to look at him because he is the one that found them Mm -hmm. but i don't think his story is odd i don't think his story is so odd that makes you have to look at him i think you just have to look at him because he was the one that was there and found them Mm -hmm. and called 911 and you have to at least um, rule him out or in as a suspect now it took more than a month for detectives to track down a very important witness but they were able to interview possibly the last person other than the killer or killers to see the four victims alive. This was a customer who was in the shop just minutes before the shooting. This is a man by the name of Kelly Sisk. This witness told the sheriff's department that he saw a man in the dealership when he was in there. And he recalled how the unknown man in the shop had inquired about a specific motorcycle Uh and spoke as if he had little to no knowledge about bikes. So much so <laughs> right. that the so much so that the customer found this guy's behavior to be strange and off putting, mm-hmm. like to the point where even if even if nothing else would have happened that day, he made a mental note of this dude because right. the conversation was weird. Now Kelly Sisk was in there simply to pay a payment. His son had some type of I don't know if it was like an ATV or a quad or something like that, but he had some kind of recreational vehicle that they had purchased there. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, once once a month I would drop by and make a payment on that. 
But I would also, you know, if I went in to make a payment, I would be in there for a half an hour to 45 minutes because right, right. I'm looking at the bikes, I'm talking shop. This guy comes in, he's talking, doesn't know what he's talking about. And then I leave and then the place is shot up later. Right. Yeah. The, the weird thing too is they brought Kelly back to the dealership after the murders took place. And I don't know how many days afterwards this was, but they were walking him through the store and they wanted him to point out anything to them that, that looked different than when he was last in the store. What, what was different about this store from the time that you left to now to after these murders have happened. And he stated, he told the detectives that, you know, the bike that that guy was talking to the store owner about, it was a black motorcycle. Mm -hmm. He said he found when they walked him through it, he, they found that bike in the back of the store. He said, no, when I was in here, this guy was talking to him about this bike and it was in the showroom. So sometime between Kelly Sisk leaving the store, that bike had made its way from the showroom to the back of the store. So I think this shows us that we're working with a pretty good lead, a, a really good tip here. And this produced a description and a sketch of this off-putting man. The description was a of a white man, 25 to 40 years of age, approximately six foot tall, 175 to 200 pounds, with dark brown feathered hair. Let's get right back to this after this quick beer break. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. 
IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Cheers, me mateys. Cheers. Now, as one would expect, the detectives looked into the lives of the victims to try to find a reason someone would want to kill them. Brian Scott and Beverly did not seem to have any bad blood between them or anyone else. Now, of course, police always examine the, the victims' families as well and close right. friends. 
And Melissa Ponder, this is Scott's wife, she would be no exception. So, of course, she is called into the station on several occasions in the months that followed the murders. During one visit to the police station, Melissa changed her baby's diaper during this visit. The police, unbeknownst to Melissa, kept the diaper. And after Melissa, you know, after Melissa had thrown it away, they confiscated this thing. Okay. So this diaper's taken by the police, and it's later sent to a lab to test the DNA. DNA samples had been collected from all four victims at the murder scene. Upon running the sample from the diaper against that of samples collected at the Superbike store, police determined that Scott was not actually the father of this baby. What? In fact, the test results said that Brian, Scott's close friend and employee, was the baby's father. So this is a huge issue for any number of reasons, not to mention Brian was married as well. Mm -hmm. They confronted, the police confronted Melissa with this information, and she flatly denied the possibility that anyone, that anyone other than Scott was the father of her baby. Mm -hmm. So she requested that they do a second DNA test, that a second test be done. Well, They did, and for a second time, the test came back with the same results, saying Brian was the father, not Scott. Okay, so does she still deny it? Well, there's there's a little more to this story. Because at that point, Melissa decides to quit speaking with police about the case. Mm-hmm. And she's not willing. She she will talk with them, but at this point, she lawyers up, and she's not talking with them unless the lawyer is present and often the lawyer is recommending that she do not speak to them at all. Right now, people everywhere, they started to think that Melissa obviously had something to do with these murders. Right now it took roughly. And I say, I say roughly, but as it comes, as as the words come out of my mouth, I could only imagine how rough it actually was, but it took roughly 18 months that passed before the cloud of suspicion surrounding Melissa would disappear. Okay. All right. Friends and family of the victims, they weren't even sure what to think at this point. At some point, Beverly, this is Scott's mom. Remember who worked at the store as well. Right. Well, the police decided that they should run her DNA against her son's Scott's DNA. Okay. To see if anything funny was going on there. The tests were run and then the results, well, what comes back is it's not a match. Okay. So something very strange is going on here, right? Yeah. Or bad lab work. There you go. Because after a lot of investigating and examining what possibly could have happened, they realized that Scott's and Brian's DNA samples had been mixed up for some reason. (sighs) So this this poor lady, right? Right. She, She loses her husband. And then you say, hey, um, by the way, we took the sample of this diaper. We took the diaper. We took some shit, right? And we mm-hmm. went down to our lab and we tested it and came out that Scott is not the, you know, it's like Maury or something, right? It's like, mm-hmm. he is not the father. And she's going, wait a second. He is the father. There's no possibility. No, no, Brian's a father. She's probably thinking because she's telling the truth, right? Right. She's probably She thinking, knows she's telling the truth. Right, she knows if she, who she slept with and who she didn't sleep with, and if she's saying there's no way in hell, 
Well, and the samples probably could have been, they could have been mixed up when they were collected at the crime scene. Because remember, these two poor guys were laying next to each each other. Mm -hmm. They may have just been mislabeled from the get-go. So this means, obviously, that Melissa was telling the truth. Scott was the father of her baby. Beverly was Scott's mother, just like everyone had always thought forever. Right. So suddenly, it doesn't look so suspicious that Melissa was only willing to speak with law enforcement with a lawyer present. Well, it makes you start wondering the competency of the law enforcement. Yeah, the other thing, though, too, is we have to think about this because she's trying to help them investigate the murder of her husband, the the murder of her son's father. And then at some point they are telling her, this is not Scott's baby. Mm -hmm. I'm sure she's like, Oh my God, they're, they're, they're trying to pin this thing on me. Yeah. Well, she'll, and then once she knows that they're full of shit, she's probably thinking, man, these window lickers, how are they going to solve the case? Well, this is the shittiest test I've ever heard of. Right. So, but just a real quick note here, Captain, on kind of uh, conflicting theories that were presented by persons closest to the case. We have the investigators that believe that the gunman uh, was armed with a pistol or handgun, and he, he entered the shop from the back of the building and killed Chris Sherbert first while he was working on the motorcycle that they later found him slumped over. Mm-hmm. They believe then the gunman walked through the shop toward the middle of the building then killed Beverly at the showroom, then Brian Lucas at the main doorway, and Scott Ponder in the parking lot. Now, Noel, who found the bodies, he says that you know he kind of disagrees with their theories and with the rumors that he had been hearing around town. The rumors he was hearing was that Scott and Brian were potentially running from the store, running from the shop to get away from someone. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that, that what he thinks is more likely having known these guys is that possibly Scott was trying to defuse some type of confrontation that was actually outside of the store when the shots were fired and Brian ran out to Scott's aid. So just a couple of opinions from persons closest to the case. I think, I think there's a chance that, that both could be right in a sense that what seems pretty clear though, is regardless of the order of the attack and how it took place, Chris Sherbert, he's working on the bike in the back of the building. Right. And he apparently is unaware that there was any type of danger at all when he was shot. So either he was surprised or had little to no time to react to what was going on or what was going to happen to him. Yeah. Well, you wonder how loud it was in the shop because let's say it's pretty loud. I didn't take that into consideration. Yeah, but let's say you have some music blasting, right? Right. So then... Or you're wrenching. Right, yeah, right. Some noise is happening with your tools. And there's a conversation with Scott in the front with this suspect. Mm-hmm. And it gets heated. He shoots Scott. Then Brian's coming out to help Scott. He gets shot. He makes his way into the store to kill the mother. But then he goes around the store to the back Mm -hmm. where they would be working on the bike. And that's why he would be shot without knowing. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. unlikely to me that they would not hear three gunshots, but again, depends on how loud the noise is. And some people will wear like noise canceling headphones when they're working with loud or earplugs. Right. Uh, So we do see, you know, the detectives chasing leads, working them ultimately to the point where they start clearing suspects. 
We start seeing the people closest to the victims getting cleared as suspects, specifically the wives and then the friend that found the bodies. Leads that were called in about strange people or suspicious people uh, that were shared by witnesses, those were worked and cleared as well, with the exception of the lead provided by Kelly Sisk. And that's the best lead because when you have a guy that obviously doesn't know what he's talking about or that's what this lead was saying, Mm -hmm. and then that same bike that that suspect was talking about is on, you know, in the back up working on it went from the showroom to to the service room mm-hmm. you know the, again that'd be like and I, all i'm doing is going off of like guitar store knowledge but if some guy came in and he was looking at a flying v mm-hmm. right and he said oh yeah I, I like this flying v but i'd like to buy it we'd put it on the the workbench to do a couple tweaks to it before the guy bought it right and so if that guy then shot up the store and left it. Well, see what I'm saying? Right. Well, the thing though is, okay. So Kelly, Kelly doesn't know who this guy is, which is, which is also strange in a way because this shop had a lot of quote unquote regulars, Mm -hmm. you know? So when he's describing this guy, he's saying, not only did he not know what he was talking about regarding motorcycles, he's no, he's no one that I've ever seen in the store before. Right. And furthermore, and it, this does not come out very early in the investigation. I think it, this came out quite late. But we would later find out that the the bike, the black motorcycle that Chris had been working on or doing something with when he was shot and ultimately found slumped over that bike. Right. That bike had a, a bill of sale written up for that bike. But there was no customer name written on the bill of sale. So they, they really believed that, that just seconds before this attack went down, the bike made its way to the back of the store. Maybe Chris took it back there right. or, or it was walked back to him. Mm-hmm. Somebody's ringing up a bill of sale or writing it out. And then the attacks must've went down right there before they could get this customer's name. Right. And you think a crime that is this vicious, it seems like the subject would have to know at least one or more of the victims. But we don't have really any evidence saying that is true. And where we see the, um, what we had referred to as the incompetence with the mixing up of the DNA samples. Mm-hmm. That, that's a little tricky because you, you know, it, d- does that fall on the, the crime scene techs? Did they, did they simply label those wrong? But regardless, if you're going to come out with an accusation like that, maybe, yeah, you should double. You should double check your work. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's one thing to make a mistake; it's another thing to not double check and then make accusations like that. Because, um, again, this this person is a victim, and now you're you're going out. I mean, just to put in the public's eyes that hey, your son's father is not his father. That makes her look like a pretty shitty person. Well, not only that, not only is he not the father, but his, his good friend, maybe best friend and coworker right. or employee is the real father. And th- the thing is, you know, people's, people's lives and mindsets can be fragile, mm-hmm. especially a victim of this nature. And to throw that out there, you, I mean, you really could be pushing somebody over the edge to committing suicide or doing something 
doing yeah. something completely off the off the wall. Yeah, law enforcement's lucky that she's of s- strong mind. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that I do think that they did well, though, that, that the investigators did well, and I I liken this to an old FBI tactic, where when they released the description of this last known man to be in the superbike store, this this fake customer guy, when they released the description and the sketch of him, they specifically say, this guy's not a suspect. He, we're not considering him, him a suspect. He, he is somebody that we would like to talk to. We mm-hmm. would like for him to come forward because we believe that he could provide information that could help solve these cases, or maybe he actually saw the real last person that was in the store. Right. Unfortunately, this man does not come forward. And the now famous case known as the Superbike murders or to local law enforcement as simply Superbikes was at a standstill. This case was still being worked from time to time. Now, on the anniversary of the murders, on the one, two, or even five and ten years after the quad homicide, the phone would ring at the police station and somebody would provide some information that would ultimately be useless to the solving of the crimes. But no matter how cold this case was, Superbikes was always on the minds of the good men and women at the sheriff's department and on the hearts and minds of the people in the community. And it just makes you wonder what like their policy or what the procedure was for writing a bill of sale mm-hmm. and why there wasn't somebody's name on that bill of sale. Mm-hmm. I wonder too, I mean, this points out to me, Captain, that the people selling the bike right. may not have known the man's name. And, and I know that sounds silly, but I mean, they don't know his name by, he's not a regular at the store. Right, right. It's more confirmation of that. Maybe they had to ask him for a driver's license or something of that nature before they legitimately put it on the bill of sale. Right. But now we have to fast forward to 13 years later, late in 2016, in a, in a completely different story here, Captain. This is taking place in Anderson, South Carolina. We have 32-year-old Charles Carver. He had recently been through a bitter divorce, and he's now living in an apartment at the Anderson Crossing Apartments Complex Mm -hmm. with his 30-year-old girlfriend, Kayla Brown. Now, Charles, who is described as a super down-to-earth great country guy, he works at First Quality Enterprises. Kayla, who did a stint in the U.S. Army after high school, was working at a dialysis center. Uh, She started working there in 2013. Mm -hmm. The happy boyfriend and girlfriend, they were very social people, uh, easy to get along with, and could often be seen walking their little Pomeranian dog named Romeo. And like... Romeo. (laughs) Romeo. Like a whole bunch of us, Charles and Kayla, they used... Facebook to stay up to date with, you know, with their friends and family and such. Mm -hmm. Both were tight with their families and both were considered to be very reliable and dependable people. Then one day in early September of 2016, people started to take notice. It seems no one had seen either Charles or Kayla in quite some time. Both were missing work and people started to wonder who's taking care of their little dog, Romeo. Right. They were both reported missing and authorities started looking for the couple and started trying to determine where they were last seen and heard from. 
Now, according to police reports from the Anderson Police Department, Charles's mother, Claudia, had been unable to reach him since, she says, August 29th, 2016. So how long is that? Well, they weren't reported missing until early September. And then we have Kayla Brown's friend, Leah Miller. She told police that she had last heard from Kayla on August 31st, but this was in the form of a short text message. Right. The message just simply said, are you awake? I guess Leah did not answer that text until later that day. But when she did reply to the text, she never heard anything back from Kayla. So Charles's car had vanished as well. The couple's cell phones eventually went dead. Even their beloved dog was, you know, he's at home without food or water. Right. Now, August 31st, the August 31st text captain is believed to be the last communication from either one of these people. And this is until we start seeing some activity in September and October. These are odd postings that appear on Facebook. Okay. They're posting them. Well, there were several news articles reporting the story okay. from time to time about the, uh, the missing people. But then there's also some news articles that come out and they start reporting this. Uh, one in particular is from the daily beast stated that the facts pretty clearly state that someone is pretending to be this missing couple on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And they're adding that ever since Charlie Carver, Charles Carver and Caleb Brown vanished, Someone had been adding life events on Facebook and even messaging their friends. Okay. So that's strange. Yeah. They simply asked a simple question here. Could this be the ex-wife? Remember we talked about a bitter divorce right now, according to this article from the daily beast, Charlie Carver's Facebook page tells the story of a man that was currently in love at the time of his disappearance. But it also states that on July 1st, Carver posted that he and his girlfriend were expecting a daughter. And then mm-hmm. on August 1st, the two bought a house together. And then on September 1st, the couple got married. Now, what horrified Charles's friends and family was that all of these happy new milestones on his timeline were logged retroactively. Right. They weren't logged until October 1st, which was more than a month after the time that the two were considered to have been missing. Right. I don't know much about these uh, life posts or life events, but it is weird that they're posting them afterwards. I'm guessing what it is is like if you got a new job uh, September 1st, that sometimes people don't post that they got a job September 1st. They might wait wait a couple weeks, see how it goes. Right. But the fact that there's all these you know, we're, we're expecting a kid. We got married, uh, for people that are very involved with their family. Um, even if it was true, you'd start wondering, well, what the heck's going on with this couple? They're not communicating with anybody in their family. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so everybody's wondering there's gotta be someone out there that's posing as Charles and still sending messages to his friends. The first week of October, do we have any idea of what, kind of messages uh well there was there was this incident that the first week of october sometime in the first week of october someone had uploaded and then quickly deleted an old picture of the couple Mm -hmm. um 
and there was a caption that that came along with the picture that just said we are fine right and then that was deleted yeah and then the missing couples case it was starting to gain more and more attention from the media as these things were happening and then there came a particularly cryptic post this was on well well, before this i mean as far as law enforcement goes again yes these people are close with their family but it's not too far out of the realm to think that they just went missing because they wanted to Mm -hmm. then they are still active on facebook i mean it has to be in the back of your head that this could be them posting this stuff yeah you know what I mean? Yeah, it, absolutely. The the but the really odd thing is that the purchasing of the house, right, is weird to me because yeah, do people do people get pregnant? Do couples get pregnant and decide to get married and they take off? It happens. It does happen. Right. But rarely would I say do we see somebody say, oh, we bought a house and then, you know, thirty days later we're at, we're we're out of dodge. Right. You can't find us anywhere. And furthermore, where's this house? Right. They were still living in the apartment complex when when they were last seen. Right. That would be real shitty people. Like, hey, we now got a house, but we're going to leave the dog behind. <laughs> right. Now that we have more space for the dog. Unfortunately, there are people out there that there are people that do that stuff. So, so regarding this cryptic post that was put on Charles Carver's Facebook page, uh, the post that that gained a lot of attention in the media was this. It was, it read last thing. I remember I was running for the door. I had to find the passage back to the place I was before relax. Said the night, man, we are programmed to receive. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave hotel, California mm-hmm. by the Eagles. Mm. Now, since their disappearance, we said that these messages started to appear uh, and they were retroactively put on their Facebook page. But during those couple of months here, we have Charles's family who they very quickly showed up after they reported him missing. They took the dog to mm-hmm. care for the dog. Good, good people. They even paid the rent for the couple's apartment for a couple of months. And then one day, Charles's family, they showed up and they backed up a truck and they packed up all of the couple's belongings and they took off. Right. This would be very difficult on the family. Meanwhile, you know, while all this scary, crazy stuff is going on with the missing couple's Facebook pages, police have an active missing persons case going on. And they are working this case from every angle. Mm -hmm. Anderson police investigators, they were able to obtain a warrant or a court order for cell phone records from AT&T. This is Kayla Brown's cell phone service provider. Police wanted to use technology to try to locate the missing couple. They wanted to see if they could locate Kayla's last cell phone signal. Now, this is not as simple as it may sound. This isn't the more common GPS technology most people are familiar with. That you know would that would only work if Kayla had location services turned on or like find my phone feature turned on instead. What the investigators were able to obtain, they obtained cell phone records that would show which cell phone towers Kayla's phone had connected to up until the moment that the phone had died. Yeah. These look, these are true crime 
listeners, right? Mm-hmm. They all know about cell phone ping technology. Well, I, I know that, Captain. I bring this up only because there are some specific details within this investigation that may be a little different from what we typically hear or what we're used to. Right. Okay. So j- just in case there's one or two people out there that don't know, the 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 cell phone is always searching for the closest or strongest signal. So cell towers keep a log of these pings, you know, when the, when the two two connect with each other. There's a ping. So since pings are being sent constantly between multiple towers, records will then allow law enforcement later to triangulate a phone's location based on the strength of the pings between the towers. Right. Well, to triangulate this and to really narrow it down to a specific location, you need three towers. Mm-hmm. In this situation, this situation is quite a bit more, it's quite more difficult because this situation, we only have two towers that are nearby. Right. Because this is a rural area. So that having. becomes a lot harder. Right. Having two towers nearby versus three gives a larger search area mm-hmm. because the search area should be based on where the two towers, where the, where the tower signals overlap, right? So here you would only have two rather than three. What they discovered in Kayla's cell phone situation that it had pinged indicating Kayla's phone was in a town 50 miles northeast of where the two had lived and the phone was sending a signal up to two days after she was last seen on August 31st. And these pings were coming from the location of Woodruff, South Carolina. So, Captain, we have the superbike quadruple homicide that takes place in 2003. And then 13 years later, we have the disappearance of this young couple that's receiving media attention because of these strange Facebook postings. Mm-hmm. Well, what do the two of these cases have to do with one another? We'll get to that tomorrow in part two. Until tomorrow, everybody out there, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.